Hello, friends. I thought today would be helpful to speak through this this cycle of life, which cycles between this time of peace and contemplation and a series of battles and utmost joy or defeat. It then leads itself back into a series of peace and contemplation, which then returns the battles and the joy. This plays out through our own lives, but also plays out through history, especially when you look at the period that encompasses what's known as the Pax Romana, or the, the the Roman time of peace, which was approximately about 27 years before Christ to about 187 after Christ. This 200-year period that led up to this time of a peace, of road building, of the, the working out of the logistic system across the entire Roman Empire. And it came about through the breakup of the famous triumvirate. When, Ar- when Mark Antony is killed approximately 27 years before Christ, we see Octavian ascend to the throne and become Augustus. Now, Augustus is one of these people that you would not expect, because he came out of bloodshed, you would not expect a time of peace, right? The the triumvirate was supposed to be a, a unified triumvirate, but yet he, in North Africa, as he battles for ultimate supremacy, overcomes his own flesh, his own triumvirate for power. But yet this leads to peace in the end, and the peace and stability that the world brought from Rome was uncompromised. And, it, and maybe it's been uncompromised ever since that this 200-year period is historical in nature, both historically as factual, but also historically as as pragmatic. This, this time that the battles and joy rescind into the peace and the contemplation is something that dominates. Dante, Dante talks about in Canto 6 of Paradiso that I was reading earlier on this morning, this idea of the, the cycle through which we see the movement of history. And this is this is, forms itself in a, in a way of microcosms into our own eternal lives, our own internal lives, internal and eternal lives, I guess, would be the more appropriate way of saying that, that we have this, this cyclic effect that happens. And sometimes the periods of peace are much shorter than the periods of battles and joys. And sometimes the battle and joy turns into despair turns into defeat and we never get back to peace but we were meant to get back to peace and this is this is a little bit what Dante talks about in Canto 6 he he goes back hundreds of years later and talks about Justinian just sending this this epic Roman leader who looks at the Roman law and sees how complicated it is it's there's so many laws and if you're going to be able to effectuate power across a broad geography with multiple people groups multiple languages who don't all speak Latin, you have to find a way to, to simplify things, to simplify things. It's, it's possible that he saw this as a, a correlation to, from the move from uh, Judaic law into Christian law as a move from the ancient Roman law into the modern Roman law. And this work that Justinian did in the words of Dante gave rise to the modern legal framework of the entirety of the West, that all of Europe owes itself, owes its own lawlessness, not lawlessness, but lawlessness, to Justinian because he not only simplified the law, but he also made it easier to understand. And the thing that's easier to understand and is simplified can be disseminated. It can be, it can be fractalized back down into your lives. And so there's, there's a hint there that we as persons should simplify the core areas of our lives, to simplify the governing principles of our lives into a handful of things to make it more redundant. Why is that? Not that we speak multiple languages inside, but we have multiple phases that we go through. One day we're sleepy, one day we're mad, one day we're as high as a kite with joy, and the other days we're defeated in despair. 
And we have to have a, a uniform, systemic approach to all of these phases of our lives. And what Dante argues, from my perspective, is that we must have this, this consistent, simplific law within ourselves, the, the great moral law. And so this Pax Romana that starts 27 BC ends with the great Marcus Aurelius in 180 AD through this, this epic series of the five great emperors, the five great Caesars of the combined Rome. And about 120, 130 years later, we see the, the final Roman leader of a combined Rome, and then Rome begins to fragment apart. And it, it's, it's ironic that the great Marcus Aurelius is the last great leader of the Pax Romana period that shows us that with greatness not only comes the expectation of greatness, but also the expectation of potential failure, that he could no longer control that which was outside of his control. And Marcus Aurelius understood this. He understood this. And so the great peace and contemplation of the Pax Romana turned back into a period of battles and joys and overcoming and striving that was in part brought back together in the 300s by the, the ascendance of Constantine, where he made this hemispherical change to the way the world operated by moving the Roman Empire, the Empire of the West, into the East, into Constantinople, as a, as a stake in the ground saying that we are the Roman Empire of the world. And this, it's around this time when you begin to see the, the ascendant phrase, the Holy Roman Empire, the, the merging of the Roman Empire with the church, that, that somehow the church and the Rome, Roman Empire are, are one. They're on the same side, fighting for the same thing to support each other. And you begin to see popes crown emperors around this time frame. You will see this, this reascendant of elements of peace, but also contemplation about what is the purpose of the Roman Empire. And it begins to shift in the 300s with Constantine. You know, Constantine that, you know, hunt, over the prior 200 years, you've seen a massive amount of destruction towards the church, notably with Nero. But this all begins to change with Constantine. And so you see this rescindant, cyclic work of contemplation and peace and battles, joy, despair, this cycle occur over and over again. And I guess the great question is, is how does this cycle happen? How is it necessary for us to view this? And, and what implications does this have for, for your life and for my life? You know, I, it's, it's tough to see this. And so we're always, we're, we're always looking to synthesize the two. What, is, what does history have to teach us about literature? How does Dante and literature translate what happens, what has happened in history and how can we integrate this in our own lives? So with those words of Justinian, this, this idea of making the complex simple, that it can never metabolize. The law, rules, greatness can never metabolize within a person or within a country or within a people group unless it is first simplified. The simplification is the precedent. It is the predecessor to the metabolization of the very thing itself. This, this plays out often in businesses and organizations where if the culture is going to, to take root, if a new tech culture is going to take, take root, the first thing you need is a, a significant emotional event to happen, to, to impact. Maybe these are, these are mass layoffs. Maybe these are the change out of the entirety of the leadership structure. Something significant happens to happen motivationally and emotionally. This is in the words of Horst Schultze, the, the epic 
founder and reviver of the Ritz Carlton brand, who understood culture like no under, who understands culture like no no other. And when we begin to see this happen, we begin to see this cascade down of the organization that the culture begins to take root. And it only takes root because of the significant emotional challenges, significant emotional change that happens with an organization. Because people are not receptive unless there's a significant, significant emotional change. Likely, and best of all, the threat of ultimate destruction of the organization itself. That is probably the best one. But what if you could synthesize the cultural change that you want to see within an organization and have this come to fruition in the way that is metabolized within the organization? You would do that in a simple way, maybe a a grand act of self-discipline or a grand act of self-humiliation to humble yourself as the leader in front of the company in a very, very public way. There might be something to be said for that, right? When the leader does it, it's okay for the followers to do it. And so we see this this common theme of the simplification and the manifestation of the simple parts into the whole as a, as a common theme that, that would lead the people back into a time of peace and out of battle. It's the same theory that leads us internally from peace in the battle as well as organizationally from peace into battle. And we find ourselves thinking about this consistently. How do we get back into the area of peace? And the elongated areas of peace are the times when we are to be contemplative. The the peace has one purpose, and that is to cause the contemplation, the complication of the individual who is experiencing the peace. Because the period of peace is made to prepare us for the period of battles. And the period of battle is meant to prepare us for the next period of peace. Joe Rogan would put it something like this, that that times of peace make men weak, but times of battle make men strong. That strong men create peace, but peace creates weak men. And weak men create hard times, and hard times are what lead to tough men. It's something like that, something like that, that the bifurcational aspect of the of this movement from peace to battle, battle to peace, is something that builds people. And it's therefore natural for history itself to be built along this this twofold cycle of the way that things work. And so as you as you face these challenges, understand that peace comes for a time of preparation. Peace lays the groundwork for the great battles. And of course, what great battle was had during the 200 years between 27 years before Christ and 180 years after the death of Christ, but global stability for a grander purpose. The Senate of potentially the greatest messenger of peace that's ever been known, definitely the greatest messenger of peace, but also the greatest commander himself who arrives during the Pax Romana. I think this is this is something worthwhile considering that when the phases of life come, there must be seen a purpose through it. That if we wander aimlessly through these times, through these periods, we'll never get where we're going. And this is part of what it means to be a Roman and Roman law. That in the words of Justinian, that the purpose of the arms is to preserve the peace. And the purpose of the Rome, of the peace is to preserve the Roman law. The arms are for the benefit of the law, not the law for the arms. And the proclamation that the central gift to humanity, to the world of Rome, is not arms, is not warfare, is not even leadership, is not even literature. 
It's the gift of law itself. That the purpose of Rome is to propagate law. And of course, without law, you cannot have culture. Without culture, you cannot have a people. And without a people, you cannot have a society. It then comes to fruition that law is that which we must strive. Order is something worthwhile for us to ascend to. Without order, you cannot have peace. And here's the paradox. Without a conqueror, the war never becomes peace. In fact, the only way to bring about peace is through the conquering. And the conquering by arms, the conquering by wisdom, the conquering by fear. This is something that we, we need to consider, that the, con- the very conquering of an army by fear, by arms, by wisdom, is what's necessary to bring peace. And you begin to see what this is encompassing, that we're building the whole man. We're building the whole man who can be, at one moment be peace and contemplative, but also the very, very next moment go into battle. Not just go into battle, but go into battle with the severity of destruction upon his foe, knowing that his goal for his very people, for his very life, for his very family, is to get back to that peace so he can prepare for the next battle. That ingrained in the perfect man is the warrior servant. That the, the man of peace, the man of diplomacy, must also be the man of war. And the man of the greatest diplomacy, the greatest peace, the, the most the most contemplation is also the man who has the swiftest, most severe, most brutal hand at war, so that he might get back to the peace. And this is this is how we begin to think about how to build a man, how to build a society, how to build an organization, the organization that it's at peace, but understands that the struggles are what bring it to the next level of peace. Pre peace is something that is it's hierarchical in nature, that they it ladders to the next levels of peace. Peace and growth, peace and war, contemplation and joy and despair and fear and overcoming the fear, that is the cycle. So in conclusion, we, we see this very cycle at play in history, in cultures, in organizations. But the cycle has a hint of the truth built within it. It, it contains truth itself and that that's how we are to become men and women that are whole, that are capable, that are worthy to be called men and women who are able to work between the peace and the brutality of war 